0: Welcome to Creativity Unleashed, the podcast for creatives by creatives. Our guest today, is Stephanie Arnold, as seen on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Access Hollywood, The Steve Harvey Show, and more, knew she was going to die and did. In her award-winning book, 37 Seconds, and on the Netflix show, Surviving Death, Stephanie recounts her traumatic journey of knowing intuitively she was going to die, how nobody believed her, and what happened when her intuition proved right after the birth of her son. She now dedicates her life to advocacy work and spreading awareness about doctor-patient communication, trauma recovery, and discovering meaning in our lives. So I want to welcome Stephanie Arnold to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. You know, I was thinking about it this morning, and I equate this to like the first woman that went to the moon. I have so many questions, you know, you don't often meet someone who's died and come back to tell us the story. So I just want to start with the beginning. Where were you born? Tell us about your family. Who is Stephanie Arnold? And then we'll go from there.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm excited to do this. I, 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 We've talked about this before that I don't believe in coincidences. So it's fun to get to know you, Sergio, and to develop the friendship that we're developing. So it's really nice. Um, so I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. My father is Cuban. Um, and why I probably love that. Why I probably bonded (laughs) with you in the first place. Um, and my mother is from Peoria, Illinois, and her father was part of the mob and used what? yeah, you.
0: Oh, plot twist! I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, there
1: was there was a part of my book that she was like, "Do not write this," and I said, "I said what?" She's like, "You cannot write that your grandfather was part of the mob." I said, "But he was." She's like, "He was a legitimate businessman," and I said, <laughs> "Only people that use those words are people that were in the mob." And how many friends did you know that their their business partner showed up with machine guns? So so yeah so luckily they have all passed in <laughs> luckily because then she was just like getting a lot of conversations from her friends, um, in Florida of like, I didn't realize your father was in the mob. She's like, shut up. I don't want to talk
0: about it. So was this during the bootlegging era?
1: Yeah. So I, yeah. Pictures.
0: such an exciting time. Yeah.
1: I have pictures of their saloon during prohibition. I have, um, my, my Love grandmother it. used to box for Meyer Lansky. And so he was, his his nickname was flat because he flattened them, but he was in the scrap metal business. And so if you know anything about the scrap metal business, it wasn't the it was a lot of legitimate businessmen that were in the, the scrap metal business.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess to the defense of our forefathers and mothers, immigrants in America and North America in general because in Canada there's a great tradition of bootlegging as well and it was prohibition and it was the government and those policies that actually created fertile ground for these immigrant groups to emerge and for them it was survival and many of them became extremely prosperous and entrepreneurial there's no doubt there was violence for sure but i think it was i think it was circumstance i think It was the policies that the government implemented that actually created that. So, but you know, it's, it's a fascinating part of our history for sure.
1: I think you should be teaching a history class in high school right now.
0: Well, the more we know about our history, the more we learn about ourselves.
1: It's true. That's true. No, it's, it's absolutely true. And, And every time I, you know, I ask it, it's just an odd set of circumstances. I'm with, I'm at my teenage daughter's high school, um, junior varsity field hockey game. And I'm sitting in front of somebody else and we just, you know, randomly talk now school had been out for the last year and a half. So we haven't gotten to know any of the families or anything like that. And so I'm having a conversation with them and we start talking and it turns out that his father, this man's father was having lunch with a guy by the name of Sammy Sachs, And I said, um, Sammy Sachs," I said, was he? Is Sammy Sachs like in his 80s? He's like, yeah. I said, Sammy Sachs, as in the son of George Sachs, and he said, yes. Why? I said, that's my first cousin. Is it that Sachs wow. Hotel in Miami Beach? Was built by George Sachs and George Sachs and my grandmother, um, our brother and sister. And you know, the, it was just such, such a weird thing. But then my mother, I called my mother and I said, you won't believe I, I, I had this conversation about Sammy Sachs. My mother, my mother without missing a beat is like, is he still in jail? <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I didn't know Sammy was in jail. Yeah. He, you know, he killed his mother. I was like, he killed his mother. She's like, well, you know, he was fighting with her, and then all of a sudden, you know, she had a stroke and died. I said, so, so he didn't really kill. But I said, is it really murder? And she's like, she's like, seventy. He he, is he still in jail? (laughs) Okay. Amazing. Crazy.
0: It's amazing. But these are the stories that define us. And now I know where you get your fire, so I won't mess with you. (laughs) But the other night I had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's one of my heroes. And, uh, And I said, is life predestined or do we participate in making choices? Do we drive our own destiny as many Americans believe? And he said, there are no coincidences. And when you live through your heart, magic happens. So here's a medical doctor who's talking about this idea of coincidences. And it's funny because when I met you, I had no idea that you were that Stephanie Arnold, which is amazing because it's like when I had a half hour conversation with Gary Oldman, I had no idea who he was. And I'm glad because you get to just talk about life. And and not get hung up on. Wow, you're Gary Ullman. So
1: you no, know, you should tell you should tell your audience about the story with your wife watching you, not paying attention, and us talking. Like that was that was <laughs> That was also not a
0: coincidence. Yeah, I you were on Clubhouse, and I I just didn't like the way things were going, and I thought that somebody had spoken to you or something had happened, and I reached out and said, you know, I and it was a feeling, right? It was all kind of a feeling that I just didn't like the way you were spoken to. And I said, I'm really sorry that that happened. And I reached out, but I didn't know. And then it was days later I was thinking, and I was talking to my mom, my sister, my partner, and we were talking about this show on Netflix and it's a show that I wouldn't watch typically, but anyways, and then I, and then I learned more about you and I saw the episode and learned more about your book and all the great work you were doing. So it's, you're right. There are no coincidences.
1: My husband as a statistician would be like, you know, that's statistically impossible. And even yesterday I was like, so do you believe that me sitting next to this guy who's having lunch, you know, his father's having lunch with my cousin, you know, that we, I mean, like the craziness about being in Chicago and just like, you're talking decades long of like a relationship, of family that I haven't spoken to. Do you think that's a coincidence? He's like, yes, I was like, you know what? There's no changing you. I'm like, I'm going to move on. Just move on.
0: Well, even as a man of science, how does he explain how all this happened? Like, yes, there is circumstance and this and this, but we're hurling through space right now at a million miles a minute, not hitting anything. And we wake up every morning and we're breathing. It's like, how does that happen? It can't just be happenstance.
1: He says random things happen all the time. You can, he's like, if you walk into a room, I think that there was a, there was a study of something. It's like, if you walk into a room of a hundred people, at least five people have the exact same birthday. Like there's just some statistic, um, like that. So he's like. Of course, random. And then, you know, when everything happened to me and all of the details of all of that unfolded, he's like, well, one thing is a coincidence. Two things is like, you know, maybe, but like all six visions coming true to where it came. He's like, no, even his, um, statistical mind doesn't, it doesn't add up for him. So he's like, it's a very rare occasion that that would happen. But he, he, he believes, as you saw on the Netflix show, he believes something is going on, whether it is, um, I'm more sensitive to energy or I pick up things differently, or I'm more intuitive because I'm listening differently is one thing he doesn't fully understand it. And so he's like, well, you know, maybe science hasn't caught up to it yet. And I'm, and I'm open to all of that. Um, Mm. But with the information we have currently, I, you know, I have no choice but to go spiritual on it because I don't have, I mean, I've talked to plenty of people that are smarter than me in the sciences and physics and, and quantum entanglement aspect of things. And I just, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. There's always a missing component there. And with that, it's like, okay, I'm still on this, this search.
0: Hmm. I think I learned that with childbirth. You know, we, we take that for granted. It's like, oh yeah, you're just going to have children because you choose to have children. Uh. Uh-uh. I understood the miracle of that when my son Luca was born, it was like, you can't have children. You can't have children. You can't have children. And then all of a sudden the miracle happens. It's like, how did that happen? And it was actually predicted by an Indian guru that we met in India who told me you're going to have a son and told me the the year, the month, and the day uh, that he was going to be born. How did he know that? Science can't explain that, right? So, but I want to go back to uh, you growing up in Miami. Yeah. Did you have a strong religious background or where did that... Tell me about where you were spiritually and where you were growing up. And then we'll talk about how that changed. Yeah.
1: I'm, I, I went to parochial school. So I was, you know, I was at a Jewish day school. I was brought up, um, with, a with Jewish values and a Jewish system. My parents were not religious. Um, I went to Israel when I was in high school and I stayed for a few months And I think when any young person who's impressionable at 16 goes someplace where it's, you know, you're feeling a vibration of a community. I mean, when I went to China, I felt the same thing. It was just, when you start feeling it, you want to learn more about it. And I think when I came back from Israel, part of me wanted to be more religious because I wanted an attachment to Israel. And as I was learning more and more about it and I was becoming more religious, I was, um... I was kind of isolating myself from all my friends and family because they weren't religious. When you're a religious Jew, you can only eat kosher. You, you know, you lights out, no electricity from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. There's no telephone. There's no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a religious lifestyle. You walk, you walk to, to temple, um, you know, and, and I was at some point, I think that, that, you think you're doing something and then all of a sudden something derails it. And I don't think we, we talked about this, but at one point I was 19 years old. I was very religious. I was in college and I had the opportunity to direct a music video with Julio Iglesias. Like it was just, it came out of left field. I spoke Spanish. I was like, you know, I can do this. And I had met a DP who had worked on a ton of videos and I was up for it. and and you know, back then thinking about what I accomplished, it's kind of shocking, but now I wouldn't have had the cojones to do what I did back then. And I was like, you know, when I met with Sony music, um, Latin America, which was Sony, Iscos, you know, I was like, Oh, I can direct this video. Right. And they were like, Oh, what experience do you have? And I'm like, I'll get back to you on that. So then I, you know, I met with the DP and I said, look, you know, I'm a producer. I'll make things happen because I've been working in TV since I was 14, like working in news and journalism and, and what have you. And I, and on campus, I was running the news station, like, like all, you know, aggressive entrepreneurial creatives, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm video, I'm, I'm editing, I'm shooting, I'm doing all this stuff. So, um, so I get the DP's real, he vouches for me. He's going to cover me. No problem. I'm like, okay, I'll produce it. What have you. And, um, I give the reel and they said, okay, great. We're going to, we want you to do it. Julio has never worked with a female director. Okay. Fantastic. The only time he wants to do it is Rosh Hashanah. Really? Only time. So I said, wow, we're shooting it in Bogota, Colombia. So meanwhile, I had a choice. I'm 19 years old. I had worked on infomercials and commercials. I had done like smaller stuff. I even worked on um, Elite Models Look of the Year as like you know, as supervising editor, post you know. And I was young, but I was I was very aggressive with learning everything. And so the only time he wanted to do was so I said to Julio, I said, you know, can we do it any other time? He's like, well, I'm a Jew, you know, because he's Morano, and I was like yeah, but then you wouldn't be asking me to do this. And I felt like at that point, it was, it was a decision I had to make either. And I was all or nothing. Either I was going to do this video and move forward in my career as a secular Jew, or I was going to give it up and say, this is my, I'm full of faith and I'm going to do this. And I opted for the music video. And at that point I gave up being a religious Jew. I mean, I, had apples and honey on the set. I was, you know, I made it, I made it my own. Um, but the video, um, starred a, a big Mexican, um, actress who's married to Tommy Matola. and, um, and it was incredible for, for me to have that done. And then my career took off after that point. So I was like, okay, you know, it's, you you have challenges and like you're saying in free will, like you can make those decisions. You can lean back into your faith and then see what would happen there. But I wanted to have this career in film and entertainment. I just was doing a lot of stuff in Jewish educational documentaries and working, um, with, with things for the Rebbe and Rebbe Schneerson who was, um, In New York he was the Black Hatter that died in ninety I think ninety three, when you saw like all these religious Jews taking to the streets in Brooklyn and Queens and everything like that. So I had done a documentary for him and it it is actually in the beginning of my book where he gives me a dollar and he does do prophecies where he just apropos of nothing, he'll give you a dollar and then he'll, he'll do a blessing. And in the blessing, he said, you know, you'll have difficulty having children, but you'll have them. And, wow um, and so I didn't care. I, you know, I was such, I was a teenager. I mean, it was like barely, I, yeah, I think I was, I was 19. That's all this year, that year. So barely 19. And, um, and I spent the dollar on a Coke. I was like, I'm like, T- I don't want to be married. I don't want to have kids. What are you talking about? Like that, you're going to give me that as a prophecy. Like how about winning an Academy Award? Like, how about that? Like that, yeah, <laughs> that, <yeah. laughs>
0: And some would believe that because he planted that in you, some believe that that becomes your focus and mindset. And then you manifest that. That's the law of quantum physics, right? But that negates the idea that your destiny is predetermined and pre-written. So
1: yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very heady. I I don't, you know, I blocked that out. Like there was no I there was no die in my life. There was no desire to have children. I thought I was like, I was never ever, I was not the type to marry. I was very focused on my career. And so the idea that he was giving me this kind of prophecy, I mean, all he said is I would have difficulty having children. I did seven rounds of IVF. That That's difficulty having children. That is not clinical death. That is not an amniotic fluid embolism. That is not kidney failure in a coma. That like, that like That is catastrophic, right? So... Um, uh, so that's not until I started writing the book i didn't remember those things, but yeah,
0: mm. when you said you had this uh, kind of all or nothing approach to religion, what do you believe now? because many of us do that It's like well, i didn't go to church or practice, so I'm not a spiritual person
1: yeah I, so i am I am a spiritual being um, I identify as a Jew. Um, I am aware of the laws. I'm an educated Jew, but I am not religious so um, so if we need to categorize it, I am not going to temple every week. I am not keeping the Sabbath my kids go to a Jewish day school and on Friday nights, we try as best we can to get everybody together and have Friday night dinner because it's just, it's tradition and it's family. And, and it's nice, you know, we have, we make challah bread, we light the candles, you know, and so there is that, that unity that for the family to come together. But I, you know, I do believe in predetermination. Um, you know, Jonathan said the whole time about my story. He's like, you know, I always believed you were going to survive. And I said, okay, so that's fair. I said, I always believed I was going to die, but, um, maybe it was always in the cards that I was going to survive, but how well I survived was due to my free will. Because if, if you look at the survival rate and what I had was an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a very rare one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, you go into anaphylactic shock. In most cases, they don't make it. And the hospital, you know, where I delivered, they deliver 12,000 babies a year. And, um, and the, so they had in their history at the time they had ten amniotic fluid embolisms. Six did not make it, and the other three are in permanent vegetative states. So the likelihood mm. that I'd be sitting here talking to you as clear as I am, I believe, is due to my free will because I can't look. I can't go back and test it again and not say anything and see if I would have come out the same way. But right, but. The data that I have is that because I spoke up so many times, the doctor was prepared with these extra measures in the operating room when seconds counted, right you know mm. if they waited a few minutes to get more blood to recycle the blood and to defrost it and everything like that you know you're you're talking about hemorrhaging out and you losing oxygenation to the blood, you know there a lot of damage happens in that time, so yeah.
0: What was it like leading up to the moment? Because I had, I've read and seen several of your interviews and you talk about it in the, in the Netflix show as well, that you had a feeling and that you were communicating this feeling to others and others just weren't picking up on it. They equated it to fear or anxiety or whatever. So talk to me about that, the weeks leading up to it, and then your husband's reaction to it and the people that love you the most. What was that like? And just talk to us a little bit about that.
1: You know, leading up to what happened is, you know, I had very detailed visions. I was going to die giving birth and, and I'm a rational person I and I'm used to, um, high pressure, you know, high maintenance talent, you know, the, the like you're used to it, right? It's like you're just, you deal with it, you function. I mean, I was producing the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which was a, a live show. I was EPing that show. It's 25 live cameras, 3 million people in the streets of New York. It's like You don't have time to be neurotic and histrionic. And also I'd had a... <laughs> you, you don't, right? And then you have... High, right. We've talked about the high maintenance talent. So you have, you, you know, and then you have that on top of everything. You don't have the time to be... Um, to, to, to be crushed under pressure. And, um, I had had a baby before and had had a C-section before. So this wasn't, this didn't come out of like a fear of the unknown. I had, I had an ultrasound. The ultrasound revealed that I had a placenta previa, which is basically the placenta growing on top of the cervix. And the doctors were like, "Look, you know, just don't do any heavy lifting. It should move out of the way. And if it doesn't, you can have a C section." And and it sounds quite logical. And to somebody like my husband, and to any rational human being, it's like, "Okay, you've had a C section. You have great prenatal. We got this. Yeah, you've got great prenatal care. You're at a teaching hospital. They're prepared for emergency drills. They, you know, like." I don't understand the problem. But in that moment, something sat deep inside of me that's
0: The first vision that you had, how many months before giving birth was that? I'm just trying to get a timeline.
1: Around the 21 week ultrasound, uh, 21 weeks, so five months. And so I had the 20 week ultrasound. Um, and then within that week, you know, then you start researching what is a placenta previa? What are the complications mm-hmm. of it? Um, and I was like, no, that's not it. That's not it. But when I read that my organs were going to combine like the uterus and the, um, the placenta were going to combine that I was going to need, or that there could be a need mm-hmm. for a hysterectomy that, um, that you could hemorrhage and you and the baby could die. Like it was, it was, you know, the way I call it and, and my future podcast is called knowing I call it a knowing like you don't know how you know you just do so let's remove the woo-woo out of it but every single one of us has experienced this kind of knowing like you walk into a room and you've got a bad feeling you don't know how you know you just do you walk into a restaurant and you're like I got a feeling I'm gonna have a bad meal now neuroscientists will tell a neuropsychologist will tell you well your brain is you know firing with like millions of you know, visions that you've seen over and over again, and they're putting those stories together. And then all of a sudden, that's how you're coming up with that feeling. But, mm. you know, in discussing my case, it was like, it's not like I, I've had this experience before. I've had nothing but an easy pregnancy with the first one and delivery. I was back working at eight days later. So this, this didn't make sense, but this knowing that I had sat inside of my chest and made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And at that moment, I was like, you need to take note of it. And I heard it very loud and clear. It wasn't, I didn't care about that. It was, um, that it was a voice from God or it was a voice from you know, a, a mediator or an angel or whoever it was. All I knew is that this knowing was solid and I had to do everything in my power to save my life, and um, and so I, you know, m- my thinking as a producer and as a research-oriented person is like, all right, let's let's rule out things, you know, let's let's rule out that there's nothing wrong with the baby. Let's rule out that. Um, there's no blood disorder. Let's rule out that it's not cancer. Let's rule out because people have all of these, maybe just crazy symptoms over it. So I would get ultrasounds. I would get blood work up. Everything was normal. And, you know, at one point um, I was doing research and we have a friend of ours who was a fellow gynecological oncologist. And he said, Stephanie, what you're afraid of happening is never going to happen. I said, well, just entertain me. What happens when one needs an emergency hysterectomy when you deliver? And he's like, well, OB would transfer you to maternal fetal medicine, but you really want a gynec to do it because they have more experience with reproductive organ, like high risk reproductive organ surgery. And when 20% of your blood supply is going to the uterus, that is going to be a high risk procedure. Um, and so at that point, I had that in my head that I need to meet with the gynec. And so I made an appointment with the head of uh, gynecological oncology at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. They all thought I was crazy. My husband is sitting there in the waiting room and he's, we're seeing women suffering from cancer and no hair on heads and IVs. And, you know, and I'm a rational person and I feel like I am losing it. And Jonathan's thinking in his head, but he wouldn't say it out loud he's thinking there's something wrong with the baby because she is losing her shit. like, like there is no, like what is going on. And when we went into the guy office, you know, he said, you know, how can I help you? And the resident was taking notes. And I explained that my placenta previa is going to turn into what Kim Kardashian had in a with this merge merger between these organs. I said, you're going to need to give me a hysterectomy at the time of my delivery. And he's, and he stops. And he says, um, have you been on the internet? And I was like, why, well, yes, I have. But this, and this is where my mob ties come in. My Jonathan says, Jonathan says, it looked like a mobster meeting. He's like, you pointed at <laughs> he's like, you pointed at him and said, I see you, you see me, you're my doctor. Right. So it, so it was like making the connection. I'm like, I'm just letting you know that in case I need this, you are going to be doing this. Um, and <laughs> And so, uh, so he's like, okay, Mrs. Arlo, like, let's get an MRI. If the MRI is positive for this accreta, this, this merger, then, um, I'll schedule myself on your mandatory C-section. And, and I felt better, but in the end, the MRI was negative and Jonathan's like, you should feel better because everything you're afraid of is not going to happen. And I said, I've got just this sinking feeling it is.
0: What did the feeling look like? When you talk about a feeling, is it like, describe that?
1: Um, it, it was incessant. It was, it was, the feeling was, you're driving on an open road, and you are seeing this big Mack truck heading straight for you, and everybody is seeing an open road. Mm. And you have this foreboding feeling that it's getting closer and closer, or if you imagine, if you can imagine being buried alive, being the dirt being poured on you and you're just taking your breaths and just trying to buy your time. But I knew when my delivery date would, well, I didn't know exactly, but I knew the day that I delivered this baby would be the day that I would die. And so I was a ticking time bomb waiting for it to happen. And so when people say, and I totally failed this exercise, when people tell you, it's like, if you had your expiration date, what would you do differently? You know, would you absorb like those beautiful moments in your life? And, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I failed that because what I was doing was I couldn't, I couldn't spend time focusing on the energy on my family. I was, I was racing to save my life. So, you know, God forbid I, I ended up staying dead. It, those last three months of my life were in a panic state. They were not, oh, let's go to the museum and let's spend some time at a picnic or anything. It wasn't like that. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't function.
0: That's interesting. There is, I've been reflecting on this lately, and there's a fine line between anxiety and intuition. And now that you've gone through that, you literally died it's a medical fact. It's on paper. You died for 37 seconds and came back to tell the tale. And so with your wisdom through that, now that you've gone through that experience, what's the difference between anxiety and fear? Uh, When you have those feelings in yourself, I'm sure there's a certain emotional maturity in you now. What advice can you give people in terms of when they are feeling those feelings and tuning into that intuition?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, so the the thing with a real premonition, intuitive thought is it's incessant. You feel it in your body. It does not let up. So, if I give you an example of flying, right, you can sit you can sit on an airplane and you can have a casual anxious thought like, "Oh, airplanes crash.
0: Oh shit!" It's like I'm going to die on a plane.
1: It's going to crash, right? So. It's fleeting. It's a momentary thing. It happens when you're sitting in that moment and you're, you're stressed out about it, but you're anxious. I mean, you know, now with COVID and the pandemic people are, are panicking and anxious about the virus. And I I understand that. But, um, if leading up to that flight, there's something gnawing in the back of your head saying, do not take that flight. Not because the flight might crash, but because maybe at the time you're supposed to be, um, on the ground because there's something else that you might need to attend to, or be there for family or what have you. If that is happening and you're, it's every day. I mean, what I experienced and what I continue to experience is it's a daily thing. It's, it's constant throughout the day. It does not let up until I talk it through. I process it. I, and, and half of the time, what I'll do, you know, I insert myself into the narrative every time, but Sometimes you can't change the outcome, but I feel better inserting myself into the narrative because maybe that person was supposed to know these things at that time. Or maybe like we were walking through a park and I had a bad feeling that a drug deal was going, going wrong in, in the park. And I told my husband and we were with our children and I said, we were crossing, crossing through the park. I said, just be aware. I've just got this, this feeling. So he was then on alert. Nothing happened. And we got out safe, no issue. I don't need to prove to myself, oh, let me write this down and let me see if there's a drug deal going bad, Mm -hmm. just on the off chance it is, or maybe a bigger chance that it is and somebody gets hurt. So, um, so part of it is sharing that information or writing it down with a date. If you're not, if you're concerned about being judged or, and, and you want to see if it's an actual intuitive moment versus anxiety. So if you write it down you put a date on it and you, and you talk about how it feels, I know when it hits me in the chest or when it hits me in the stomach or when the hair on the back of my neck, that's something real that I need to pay attention to. Now, if it's something that, you know, that I'm just like, have a, instant flight of, uh, of a visual. I'm like, okay, that's not, it's not, it's not sitting with me. It's, it's leaving. So that's the, Mm. the main difference is one will stay with you on the daily and the other one will not.
0: That's a great, great tip. And is there an element of surrender as well? Like the art of letting go just kind of, Because when you fail, right, you get on a boat, you kind of know, you look at the app and you say, okay, the weather's going to be X. You set out on your destination, but you can't predict every wave. The wind can totally turn. The storms can happen. And if you have to be malleable and fluid in the way you approach life. So given that you're an Emmy-nominated producer, A-type driven, how do you surrender? How do you balance those two parts of yourself and Mob Boss?
1: I don't. You, don't. No, I, you know I,
0: but you, do, you do work out i'm sure you no, meditate no, I like-
1: I, yeah yeah that i do but but no i mean that's the part that's type a it's like okay no one's gonna tell me that i can't that i can't get stronger with or i can't have a body after baby without plastic surgery okay well i'm out to if i if i dedicate and i drive myself into this like can i do this and um And the answer is yes, but that's different than surrendering. I mean, I think that the only place I got to surrender, honestly, was when I was being wheeled into the operating room. I have an epidural in. this baby was coming out no matter what. And I had no, I had nobody around me that, um, that really was listening to me. And so, you know, they thought they were, and that's, that's fine. But I mean, you're you know, for, for your audience or anyone, when you're having a C-section, your arms are taped in a T form. You have a C-section. So you have a curtain in front of your face. You're treated like, okay, let's get this baby out. You know, Stephanie, you've been under stress. And the only time I actually surrendered to this was I was done talking, like how, how much could I speak? So, so it was scary as all hell, um, in that, in those very last moments, because, there's, I couldn't run away from it. I couldn't, I couldn't. So, so in that instance, yeah, that the type A had done everything I could do up until that moment and I had no choice but to let go, but I fought it really hard um, before I ultimately let go.
0: What did it feel like to die? Talk to us about that 37 seconds. Sucked. People I'm sure will be like, did you see God? Did you see the light? Sucked. It sucked.
1: No, you know.
0: Did you feel at peace? Was there something familiar about it?
1: No, 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 no. I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to be there. I was like, you know, I was telling everybody, nobody was listening to me, and 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 now I'm. Clinically dead, and now I can't yell at everybody for saying "I told you so." And so, like I, you know, like, I, like I'm, it was not fun, Um, you know. And and to you know,
0: so you saw yourself, you lifted out of your body.
1: I did. So, but but leading up to those moments prior to flatline, eight. I felt my heart and heard it in my ears. Like I felt, if as a director, you can imagine the scene. You're hearing the pumping of the, the heartbeat. You're seeing the EKG unit. You're feeling the pressure. All of a sudden, the sound in the hospital OR is muted. Everything is becoming quite Clear with the sound of a heartbeat as it's beating faster and faster and faster until the moment of collapse. And when that impact happened, all hell broke loose in the operating room. But I was nowhere to be found in that moment. So um, the doctors said that they talked to me before I flatlined. There was about fifteen minutes. I don't remember any of it. Um, you know, and so. They said they were asking me if I was warm, if I needed anything. One nurse said that she was telling me that she'd be my husband temporarily because he wasn't there. You know, and so um, I don't remember any of that. I think that in those moments, I was so scared that I scared myself out of my body. Like, I did not want to see this... Mack truck about to hit me. Like I knew it was coming and it was, the tension was so palpable. The fear was so palpable that I just didn't, I I would have loved to have closed my eyes. Obviously I went somewhere or hid deep or whatever. Um, so I didn't, I did not remember at the time, um, what happened. I flatlined for 37 seconds. They resuscitated me, they intubated me and then they put me in a medically induced coma for six days and um when i came to and came out of it you know everybody was pretty astounded they're like how did you know and you know it was obviously well documented they're like how did you know and they're like and i'm like i don't know i'm in a teaching hospital why don't you tell me and um they said they were like, well, um, you know, foreboding happens with a cardiac arrest or an embolus, but not three months before, not in the detail you had it. So, you know, how did you know? And that wasn't helpful. And for all you healthcare workers out there who are listening, or anybody that has been in this situation you know, telling me that, um, it's a miracle I survived and God has a reason to save you was the worst thing you could tell somebody who just survived a near death experience, because it makes you acutely aware of how close a call it was. And I know what they're doing and trying to make you feel better, but you're still traumatized and and it lasts a long time. So ultimately, Hmm. um, I had gone to a regression therapist and regression therapy uses hypnotherapy to take you back into the moments of trauma. So, you know, they, they talk about, um, and here we are talking to a film director. They talk about that your, your memories are like film strips, um, in lodged somewhere deep in your memories. And if you use hypnotherapy, you can access those film strips and you can replay them and, you know, I didn't have any hope for it. I just, you know, traditional therapy wasn't working. I'd never been hypnotized. Um, so I recorded, wow. I, I recorded the therapy and I was like, you know, maybe there is, maybe there's a way to find out. Cause I was on a talk show and the host said, did you see the light? And I'm like, I don't know, man, they gave me a lot of drugs, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, they were like, I was like, I'm not afraid to say this is one life to live and that's it. But if there was a way to find out, maybe there was a way to see something that I'm not seeing. Maybe the messages I was getting for those three months, there was something else that I was unaware of. All I just heard was save your life. Um, So under hypnosis and under videotaped hypnosis, um, she took me finally back into the moments in the OR and... um, And the idea is under a relaxed state, you're, you know, you're, you're alert. So I was able to see everything that happened outside of my body, what was going on in the operating room, which nurse jumped on my chest to give me CPR, which person hit the button for the code, what Jonathan was wearing off of the plane that my mother, you know, when I was in a coma, my mother, what my mother was wearing, how she came into the, the, um, ICU, um, and almost passed out. And there were just like all these little details. And, um, you know, of course I, when I was done with that session, I felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. But again, I, I don't know if what I'm saying is real, right. It's, it could be made up in my head. And so Jonathan, when he took a look at the, um, therapy for like two seconds, cause it's quite graphic. Cause you see my body convulse and seize and, and gag and whatever. And so he said, how do you know this is not a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? And I was like, that's funny. You know, after I was done calling him a lot of names, I just said, I said, you know, it was a fair point, you know? So I called, uh, the therapist and I said, how do you know what I'm telling you is true? She's like, sometimes the only validation we get is the patient feels better and you feel better. And I said, that's not good enough for me. I have witnesses. So instead of going like hearsay and, edging, you know, a doctor and saying, Oh, did it look like this or whatever? They had the tapes. So I took the tapes back to the anesthesiologist and to the OB and to everything. And like you saw on the, um, on the documentary on, on Netflix, it was like, you know, the doctor was like, you know, I shouldn't know. Any of it, but was accurate down to where everybody was standing, what they were doing. Um, you know, my eyes were taped shut, so they said, "Well, you know, maybe hearing is the last to go, but you most certainly couldn't have seen." You know, I had a curtain in front of my face. There were there were lots of lots of twists and turns that were not wouldn't be in my medical file, and ultimately mm. were not. Um,
0: and so, what was the reaction of the doctors when they put it together?
1: Shock. Um, there was only one doctor. Um, only one out of the entire facility who said this was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? And so I'll I'll come back to that in a minute. But all of the doctors Mm. who had seen it have changed the way they practice medicine. Wow. And that is... That's powerful. That is so powerful. I mean, when when HarperCollins bought the rights to the book, they said, you know, it's going to compete with heaven is for real and proof of heaven and everything like that. And I'm happy to say it didn't because I don't think that that's my audience, I I'm not gonna shy away from the spiritual like the spiritually transformative experience that I had, but I don't lead with that because I don't think it's my calling. And when we're talking about how experiences in life shift and change you, you know, being a bridge to as a patient advocate to the medical community or to clinicians and using our story as an example of what do you really know? I mean, they talk about you know, for anybody out there who's had um, family members in the ICU and a coma, and especially you know, communicating with with COVID-stricken patients where you can't touch them or go near them, you know, the patients can hear you. And you know, I have been able to prove over and over again that what when I was in a coma, the things that that. Um, I heard, but not just heard. I, I, you know, the last medical conference I spoke at, I said, you know, how many of you believe that the patient can hear you when you're telling the families to talk to them and, and all of them raised their hands. And I said, I said, but as a matter of fact, not as a matter of faith. Right. And so, and then a third of them raised their hand. Right. And I said, well, as a, as a matter of fact, we can not only hear you, but in many cases we can see you.
0: Wow. And that's, we learned that with Alzheimer's on the last film, we did the Cuban. We learned that people who we think are brain dead, who are in a catatonic state, you play music to them uh, that they remember that's significant to them. And you watch them come back to life. This is a well-documented thing.
1: I saw your post about the lady Gaga. And yeah, it was.
0: And Tony Bennett. It's powerful. This is real. And I'm glad that because science is fluid and this idea that We know it all and science is the answer to all things. I think people like Stephen Hawking and Einstein prove that just because you believe the world is flat, that's good for you, but that's not necessarily the truth. So we have to ask questions. And now that you've been on every national talk show and that you're a celebrity, a best selling author with 37 seconds, what is your message or what is your goal or intention?
1: Well, you're funny when you give that, that resume, I'm still my kid's mom and they don't give a shit and they're just, <laughs> they're just like, there's no peanut butter in the house. So, um,
0: yeah, exactly. It keeps you humble, it it keeps, totally you, keeps totally you grounded,
1: does. but
0: what's your mission? What is the message that you want to give people?
1: I will always, always, always have, um, a part of my life. I mean, I, I'll, I'll I love film and television. It's it, it gets my creative energy out there. But where I came from before, I used to run a division of Endemol and we did a lot of reality shows and what have you. And I feel like, you know, that was great for the bank account and that was great for the ego. Um, but going through something like this, what it's done is it's refocused the type of content I want to put out there that's going to be of service and to help. And so, um, so my... My mission in my life is, is two pronged. You know, the first is to reach as many people as I can to let them know that life doesn't end when we physically do. And also to speak up when they sense something is wrong. I don't care whether you believe that it comes from a spiritual place or a scientific place. You are getting these messages. Your body has a compass and it's intuitive. And this is something we are all pre-wired for. This isn't anything that's magical. It's just some listen to it differently than others. And some believe that it's a message from God or, you know, or an angel or a messenger. Um, or And some people feel like, okay, no, intuition 100% has been proven that it's real, it's fast, It's it, your body reacts to it. There's a neuroscientist in, in, in um, Australia who's written many books about it and has proven in the lab over and over again that it exists. And so, you know, it's there to help you. I think we just need to trust it more. And also, uh, well, I know we need to trust it more. I, too many people, there was a woman that was on a show with me and they remember who had lost her legs and she said – she knew something was wrong, but she didn't speak up. And she said, had she done, it, it would have been a simple case of an antibiotic that would have saved her lens. And she said, you know, she wished she had the courage to speak up. And what I tell people is, what is the worst that can happen? People are going to judge you. They're already judging you for your Instagram profiles. Like, who cares? You will never regret speaking up and being wrong, but you 100% will regret not speaking up and being right. And in some cases dead, right. So what are you going to do? Sit back? Like you know, the, doc- the doctors, everybody judged me. Every single person thought it was crazy. And, you know, in the end I am alive, thank God. And they're like, how did you know? And that's a crazy story and that's amazing and whatever. But I'm like, yeah, but we could be having the conversation of, oh, she knew and too bad. She's six feet underground. So I'm never going to shut up. And so my message to, to everybody is like, like I mean, for me, the worst case, I would have been wrong. I would have sent flowers and chocolates. And like I'm never having another baby again. Right. Like there was some, some sort of craziness going on, but you know, again, like if you send something, say something. Cause not only will it save your life, literally it can save someone you love. And And what I'm doing now with this podcast I'm launching from the people with Netflix is that um, I am sharing other people's stories of this kind of knowing and taking a deep dive from a scientific or theoretical physicist aspect, theoretical scientist, to say, what could this possibly be? But the reality is it exists. And so you know, each, again, each one of us has had it at every different level. And the more we insert ourselves into the narrative, the more we discuss it, the more we can help ourselves and others. And from the doctor's perspective and the the way that I continue to speak at these conferences is that they are changing the way that they listen to the patient. And one of the very first things, the first year med students here is listen to the patient because they are already giving you the diagnosis. And I believe that medicine has gone such in a way of like data driven with check boxes and let's teach our residents a certain way that they're missing listening to the patient and also listening to themselves. They're just like check, check, check. and And the reality is, people like myself and others that have experienced these kind of things were outliers. So they're not teaching for the masses They, you know, or they're not teaching for the outliers They're teaching for the masses. And so if they lose a few patients here and there, then, you know, so be it, that's the cost of doing business. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be that way.
0: Some of that boils down to just compassion. I mean, there's even science that talks about the observer effect, right? If a doctor had a fight with her husband that morning or a surgeon has a bad golf game that day, you bring that energy into the operating room. And that has an effect because we're all connected. And this has been proven in science. So the fact that they don't acknowledge that sometimes, I find that bizarre.
1: I also also think they're inundated. Insurance has changed. We're seeing now with the pandemic that hospitals are, are business run by a lot of MBAs and, and looking at numbers as opposed to the compassion for even their own staff and realizing that they're putting the clinicians at risk. And, you know, they're, they're getting in and out of their patients so that they can just keep the numbers and they have to constantly diversify their portfolios as a doctor in order to make ends meet. And it's Pretty, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. I, you know, there was an article in MIT News about how AI is taking over medicine, but there is one thing that artificial intelligence cannot duplicate, and that is a doctor's intuition. And so there was something about doctors, when they see a patient in the ICU, that they know intuitively what tests to order, and that can help with diagnostics. But AI can't do that. And so you can't remove certain things and then have other things be, oh, well, this is it, right?
0: Yeah, I had a pediatrician when I was a kid. I just knew. I walked in. And he would look at me and he would just say this. Some of that, of course, is experience. He had white hair and he had been doing it for 50 years. But I knew there was something intuitive. I was a kid. I felt his energy connecting. And he really looked in my eyes as if I was the only person in the world to him within that 10 minutes.
1: It's kind of how you you feel like when you're working with your celebrities on your set, right? You feel like you're the only person in the world.
0: Well, you either have a heart connection or you don't. And that's just all of us aren't going to see the world the same way and thank God for that. But to end off, I have a final question. What advice do you have for emerging artists who are struggling to find their way and they see the world cloudy or they're in a dark place and they just can't see the forest from the trees. What advice do you have for them in terms of pursuing their creative life?
1: You know, I, I think you have to be realistic to a certain extent, right? You need to make money, you need to pay your bills, you need to pay your rent if that's where you are. So, you know, part of it is like, okay, how can you compartmentalize the part that you need in order to live your life as as sparingly as possible? Like, this is my monthly nut. So this is what I'm going to do to Uber. This is what I'm going to do to work at Starbucks. This is what I'm going to do in order to cover this. But I would never give up on the creative passion because – Even the working at Uber or working at Starbucks, you're going to get infused with some sort of creative energy. Somebody you're going to meet on the street is going to affect you. And that is going to affect the way you write. You know, the way I write now through these experiences and the people that I've met, including yourself, is like okay, I'm seeing things differently. And so those encounters, if you are a creative person, no matter who it is, you are going to get ignited about like what you, like whether it's your documentary you want to do, or the next person you're going to meet might have funding, very little funding, but might have funding to do a small project with you. And so you just never know until you put yourself out there. What you're guaranteed though, is if you're you're in a hovel and you are protecting yourself from the outside world and you are so um uh what's the word you're you're more introverted and you won't put yourself out there from a creative perspective you won't get anywhere because how are you going to get that that burst of energy um when you're also clouded and weighed down with all of the life's things that need to happen so, um, many people that are asking me about like how to write a book, I'm like, you just have to write my book. Didn't start out that, I mean, it's true. My, you just have to write. I mean, I, yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday, like I'm 50 and there was a, there was a woman who's 50 and she was making all of these excuses about the fact that she'll never get her body back. And I said, I said, let me show you where I was before. I said, and this is not plastic surgery. I said, so you can say whatever excuses you want, or you could just say, I don't want to do it. And that's totally fine too. But don't complain about the fact certain things are not getting done if you're not willing to put your neck out there and just do it. Now, I understand there are many times, and we've talked about that many times that, that I have put myself out there thinking that the book should be script series book should be this and I'm, we're talking years of dedication to try and figure out where this is going you know when until I s- I finally see that there's no road to go which I don't know whether that will ever appear um I'm gonna keep going because in my heart I feel that it is it's not going to be the only thing I rest my laurels on I've got to do other things because I need to make ends me but other than that no you know you just don't give up or you give up right you don't give up or you give up but you shut the fuck up
0: thank you so much stephanie this has been so great i always enjoy speaking to you and i always learn so much everybody buy her book 37 seconds and the next and the next and the next and we're so excited for everything you have coming and i really want to thank you for your time
1: it's my pleasure thank you
0: thank you